0: Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. Welcome to The Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. Hey guys, Chad here, and we've got a special announcement that I am super psyched about. We are announcing the first ever Real Estate Hackers Conference. Get excited. It's called The Next Generation of Real Estate Investing focused on really the future of where investing is going, combining real estate, tech, and all the innovation coming about. It's going to be held in Lancaster, Pennsylvania at the Lancaster Convention Center. We're going to have 40 speakers, including many folks that you've heard on this podcast, folks like Matt Faircloth, Jerry Horst, Anna Kelly, Michael Manti, even Eric Cabral, who produces the show, will be there. Networking at night on Friday and Saturday at some super fun places within walking distance of the event. And we're going to have a 100 vendors who are cross-investing. These are folks I wish I had met when I first started investing in real estate. Each will even have a discount coupon to save you money the first time you work with them. April 3rd, 4th, and 5th at the Lancaster Convention Center. Go to realestatehackersconference.com to learn more. That's realestatehackersconference.com. Use the code HACKERS to save 50 bucks, and man, I hope to see you there. It's going to be an awesome, awesome weekend. On to the show. All right, guys. I am pumped today. We've got an awesome guest here who I'm just so pumped for you to hear from, uh, really just the exact epicenter of what we talk about here, the mixture of real estate and tech on the Real Estate Hackers podcast, Jillian Sidoti with uh, Crowbridge Sidoti and crowdfunding lawyers jillian thank you so much for taking time to uh join us
1: you're very welcome thank you for having me
0: cool so jillian uh you do a lot of awesome stuff uh in kind of helping people in the syndication and money raising space to make sure they're doing it legally um but it's a little different as i mean i think a lot of times people think of a lawyer as being very hyper local uh, covering, you know, uh, one specific kind of small area, whereas you and, and your firm kind of go across the country, but hyper focused around helping uh, real estate investors and really all sorts of folks raise money. Is that that's is right. that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So we help with making sure that you're legally compliant when you go out to get money from investors. A lot of, uh, a lot of issuers out there, a lot of companies, a lot of real estate entrepreneurs go out and just Start asking for money from their friends and family, and forget the fact that they're they're actually entering into a legal transaction, and there needs to be some paperwork between the two of them.
0: Yeah, that's totally. And I mean, I, I imagine. I mean, so I've raised a syndication. I've been around a bunch of syndications. It seems like the devil's in the details mm-hmm. of kind of trying to stay compliant. Is that is that a fair statement? I guess that's
1: a very fair statement. I mean. The issue is that we're seeing now, especially, you know, when we're talking about technology, what we're seeing is there's a lot of um, experts out there in the field that are claiming to know how to, to practice this area of law by using templates and and technology, which is the technology part is great, but there has to be some brain power behind that technology. You really have to have somebody who, you know, with the devil in the details who knows and understands what the law is and, and how, how these things should really work. Um, you know, and, and there's, there's, there's vulnerable investors out there that are getting these legal documents that might not necessarily convey proper, a proper relationship.
0: Yeah, totally. I, I, you know, you're saying that it makes me think that um our first ever guest here on the Real Estate Hackers podcast was Matt Faircloth. I don't know if yeah. you happen to know Matt, but He, uh, I I asked him, you know, what's his wish of tech over the next five years? And he said, you know, I just want to be able to invest in syndication with a tap of my finger on a smartphone done and just make it real easy. And, you know, it's interesting as I think back to that comment and what you're saying that that all sounds great, but there's some legal work that has to be done to make sure you're not breaking rules. Well, it's
1: not it. even so much that, you know, I, I know Matt and I don't know if he means it from the point of view, from his own point of view as, as, as an investor or his point of view as an issuer. And, and is he really looking for, you know, the ease for his investors? or Is he looking for the ease for himself as an investor? Either way, I'm, I'm fine with that, except for the fact you, you should be able to, you should have to. Um, know what you're getting into prior to getting into it, especially with real estate where a lot of these issuers I find get really, really creative in the way they do things or the returns they promise. And and we want to make sure that the investor is fully informed before they're investing. The worst thing that can happen is when an investor comes back to you and goes, well, you didn't tell me that. Um, and that they, they really don't have any awareness of what's going on.
0: Yeah, totally. So uh, you work with, I guess, syndicators across the the country. Is that right? That's right. Um, Which is really interesting It puts you in, you know, an incredibly interesting spot where you kind of see best in class. And also, I guess the, some things that are probably not best in class. Uh, Do do you have some maybe words of wisdom for our audience of maybe folks who are trying to syndicate or maybe on the passive side, I guess just, you know, some things that you've seen to maybe be careful of just some warning flags along the way.
1: Uh, you know, my biggest thing always has been is for for an investor. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. And on the reverse of that, um, don't overpromise and underdeliver for the for the issuer for the company. Um, I see this happen all the time. I was just talking to one of my um, favorite clients last night, uh, and and she had made a remark about another person in the industry and 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 the risks they were taking and the things they were saying online. And uh, what they were doing, and and my response to that was, you know, it seems to me that they're overpromising and underdelivering. And my and my comment was, you know, that post they put on Facebook that offers twenty five percent return on investment, uh, although that's perfectly legal to say, will also become um, Exhibit A in the trial against them uh, if if push comes to shove and they didn't make twenty five percent return on investment. So I, I always tell people to, to not be so lofty in the returns they're offering to investors and also to be, even if it's legal to do, to be incredibly careful when projecting returns to investors.
0: And just to go one step further, I guess the, what you're afraid of is ultimately not hitting those returns mm-hmm. and then the investor basically claiming that you falsified the, the syndicator or the issuer, basically falsified the opportunity. Is that fair?
1: Right. Well, and not even so much false of, I just, just oversold it, you know, said, said something that they either knew, knew or should have known was not probable. So if they knew or should have known that 25% return on investment was not probable, that fraud is going to be inferred.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, it, it's, it's obviously easier to oversell a syndication or an opportunity when talking to investors. Sure. Yeah, uh, but to it's get-
1: reckless. <laughs>
0: right that makes a ton of sense um i know our audience just you know definitely has a huge appetite for tech uh how are you thinking about as more and more of these issuers are or maybe even tech companies uh how are you thinking about that from a perspective of you may not even meet the issuer i mean you may just see the opportunity online uh what, what are some of the things that are kind of coming to the forefront from a tech perspective as as more opportunities are uh, transacted on through technology?
1: Well, a lot of the tech out there, you know, does do some vetting and of before you even get to use their tech, while other technology providers are simply white labeling their platform. So the 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 responsibility falls on the issuer to make sure that they're doing the right thing. And there's some things they can put in place. I mean, honestly, the best thing you can do in my opinion, of course, is that hire a good securities attorney because the securities attorney is going to flesh out a lot, of those, a lot of those things that need to get fleshed out prior to putting the disclosure out there. Now, ultimately, you can use all the securities attorneys and technology platforms and what have you that you want. Um, it doesn't make a bit of difference if you're lying. <laughs> like, you know, right. I can't stop you from being a liar. I can right. warn you not to be a liar and hope that right. you won't lie.
0: <laughs> that's funny. Um, yeah, I mean, look. I guess uh, you know, a, a bad person, whether there's the internet or not, is still a bad person.
1: Uh, well, that's not necessarily true. I, I actually, I, I disagree with that, and I'll tell you why. Because you know, one of the things I I often say is that most Ponzi schemes don't start with a guy getting up in the morning and going, "I think I'm going to start a Ponzi scheme today." They start out of desperation you know like they start out of i think if i don't pay these investors this money they're going to get mad at me i'll make up for it later i'll do this later i'll i'll take care of it later and later never comes and then it becomes a real problem or they start living a lifestyle that they become accustomed to um and it just gets out of control
0: yeah yeah totally uh it's it's a, a great a great point that uh you know these stories when they're told at the end it looks right. so bad but like along the way each individual decision could probably be rationalized i guess
1: uh, that's exactly right not just each individual decision but then the other thing i often see in these situations is that ego gets involved right um I, like i'm so i'm so big bad and important that you know, no one's ever going to get mad. Everybody loves me. No one's going to get ever mad at me and, and I can fix this and I have enough money that I can fix it. But but the reality is that they don't um, because they spent it all or because they returned it to investors that weren't supposed to get their money back or what have you. And they just kept raising capital.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You can see how these things can run amok quickly. Yeah. Um, what are some, some things that you try to advise passive investors as ways to kind of, I don't know. I guess just double check or triple check that someone is a good sponsor, is a good syndicator. Uh, you know, what what are some th- ways that you kind of advise people on that side? If
1: you're a, if you're a passive investor, you and you don't know what you're doing, then a you either don't invest or b get an advisor to advise you on investing. Like so, for example, even if you're accredited, that doesn't necessarily mean you're smart enough to invest. I just dealt with this recently. Um, I I had a very smart guy who was smart in his own right and his own business. He had $3.5 million cash. And he came to me with two offers from two different syndicators saying, should I invest in these? One of them on page one, I said, absolutely not. Like this first page has something that says to me, that you should never be investing in this. And so if you're a lay person, you might not necessarily know to look for that. Um, so my my advice is, you know, get either a good... Um, a good uh, advisor of some sort or a good securities attorney or a good someone to help you review these things so that you know what you're getting into. Um, You know, a lot of times, I don't know if a deal's really good. I, I, I have a CCIM and we're talking about real estate specifically. I have a CCIM, so I do know how to analyze a deal, but there's people out there that are better at analyzing deals than I am. So I'll send it off to another lawyer oftentimes for him to analyze the deal and have him look at um what is is involved so that i uh i'm making sure that 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 investor is getting you know full service when it comes to determining whether they should invest or not yeah it it costs you a couple a couple hundred bucks to a thousand dollars to have another to have a lawyer uh read it it's better to lose and spend a thousand dollars than to lose a hundred thousand dollars
0: yeah yeah, I mean, I think especially right the first time maybe you're working with someone, you don't have the track record, you, right. don't, you don't have that industry expertise of, you know, mobile home parks or something, right? And, right. you know, you're a really successful, you know, micro something physician, <laughs> right? And, and you're trying to evaluate a, a mobile home park. And it's interesting, I mean, I'm in real estate and I've had some people send things my way and say, hey, what do you think about this? And it, even though I'm in real estate and this is all I do and we are a property management company and we see a lot of stuff, there's times when I see opportunities, I say, I can't evaluate that. I don't have enough expertise in Sweden <laughs> to know if that's a good deal or whatever. Uh, and I, you know, I, think, so I think that makes a lot of sense of, of, of like knowing your blind spots and then trying to find someone, you know, to your point, for a, a very low amount of money to just give you the... Hey, I can't guarantee it's a good deal, but this passes the sniff test, basically. Yeah,
1: and the other thing is too is experience is important, but I I would always caution people to really dig deep no matter who like whether it's a newbie that you're evaluating, like a a person who's bringing you their their first deal or their second or third deal, like maybe they haven't done a lot of deals and 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 they're and you're an investor and they're bringing one to you. Um it's really important to evaluate those people and and scrutinize them carefully. It's all. It's equally as important to evaluate the guy or the girl who has a ton of experience and has a ton of deals out there and a ton of investors. I tell people to vet deals that are being done by you know um, a mom and pop organization just as much as you would vet and vet Grant Cardone as much as you would vet. Those organizations, because just because somebody's super popular doesn't mean, and that's not. By the way, Grant Cardone's my client. I'm not talking about him. So, um, but just <laughs> no, no, because, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> so, right. uh, but just because somebody's super popular and everybody's flocking to them, and they have tons of investors and tons of properties, so did Bernie Madoff.
0: Right. Yeah. No. I mean, right. I mean, I think I think sometimes as someone gets more high profile uh, in some ways the risk gets, gets greater because it's easier for them to raise money. Exactly. And, and, and then things can kind of get out of control pretty quickly. Right. Um, that's great. What, uh, what are some things that people should be on the lookout for from a legal perspective to avoid? Like what is something that you see people do that you're like, oh gosh, dude, please do not do that. Uh, (laughs)
1: Offering more than you can actually afford to pay. It happens all the time. Like I'll have people tell me like, but my investors need X. No, they don't. You just told them that they needed X or you trained them to think that they needed X. They don't need X, whatever X may be. Like, so we'll just take a a bigger number. My investors need 15% return on investment in order to invest. I was going to swear. I stopped You can myself. swear.
0: You can swear if you want to.
1: <laughs> That's crap. <laughs> <laughs> That's crap. And let me explain why. Because, because in the bank, they're making less than 1%. So no, your investors don't need to make like an, another, a, a certain number. And if they do need to make a certain number and your deal doesn't provide for it, then don't do the deal because you're not going to raise the capital and it's not going to work. Right. So, so there's nothing your investors need that you don't teach them that they need. Um, you have to promise what you can actually pay, not what you hope and wish and dream to pay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I do, I sometimes hear syndicators saying, and, and look, I mean, I think you look at numbers like 15% that comes up a lot, right? 14, percent yeah. is like, it's like, it, you know, when you hit that number, it's, it definitely makes things easier to raise money. And then so it almost seems like the pro forma is created to back into the, uh, the number to make it work, right. which is really scary, right. <laughs> right? Like the pro forma should be the pro forma and then where it falls, it falls. Right. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and I, I definitely, I totally agree. Um, how do you think about, So it seems to me, and I'm really interested to hear your your talk on this because since this is what you do, um, I'm not so much interested in like what your rates are necessarily, but it seems to me like the rates overall for someone performing kind of legal duties for a syndication feels like that's starting to come down as folks like yourself do more of these things and kind of have the ability to almost templatize it a little bit uh, as opposed to the individual local lawyer who has to kind of write a operating agreement from the ground up? Uh, I don't know. How do you react to that? Do you agree? Is that fair? Or um,
1: it might be. It might that actually probably could very well be true for my competition. Our prices are going up, and I'll tell you why. Um, we have more experience. We have uh, we have a better system. We we've we've uh, you know we've built a better wheel around here. And, um, and, and so I have spent, you know, a lot of years and a lot of time and a lot of energy has have have my staff and my attorneys and our support staff, everybody has spent a lot of sweat equity in building a better mousetrap around here with our templates. Our templates are copywritten. Um, we, we, we work with tax attorneys and CPAs on making sure that they're compliant, from a tax perspective as well because tax law is also evolving so is securities law and as people get more inventive we have to work that into the template and work that into our system and and as we get into a robotic age and and law firms are not immune to the robotic age uh and as we adopt and adapt to the robotic age we're able to move quicker and we're able to move quicker than our competition and i I am going to tell you, you are going to, you're going to make up for the time that you'll spend with another attorney to learn the ropes um, with us. So you might spend a little more with us than perhaps our closest competition. Totally worth it. We'll be done faster and you'll have a better mousetrap when you're done.
0: Yeah. um, It's interesting the idea of, uh, you're kind of hinting at this that uh, the, the, it's interesting. People talk about like creating a team. I, I kind of, I kind of actually don't like that phrase. People, I, I they get used too much in real yeah. estate and you know, that investor who is about to go buy a single family home, you know, uh, they, they, they probably do not need a hundred person team to go buy a single family home. No. They probably need a really good real <laughs> no. estate agent. Um, but, uh, it's interesting to think about how your lawyer, as you do grow in this, does, is a part of your team and also can help investors feel more confident of what they're getting into that if you have kind of stamped it, it it's gonna, it's going to kind of pass a couple sniff tests for the investor and I think that's kind of Absolutely. what you're saying here yeah.
1: yeah, and the other thing is too i read I read so many offering documents, and I will tell you this: I am a lawyer i've been doing this for fourteen years prior to this, I was a syndicator myself. I have read a ton of offering memorandums and and operating agreements, and they are so many of them are so very 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 confusing. Um, They're so they're so verbose. They're so big. They don't make any sense. They don't make any sense to the investor. And one of the things we pride ourselves on is that we make these documents that are easy for the investor to read, so that they don't have to get some kind of specialized you know, super lawyer to read those documents. I mean, my eyes glaze over when I read some of these things and I don't want that to happen to the investor or my client.
0: Yeah, yeah, that totally, totally makes sense. Um, I'm not so much asking for your rates, but if yeah. just so someone kind of gets a range of, if I'm about to go do a syndication and uh, I'm just trying to kind of budget for what it costs for the, the legal help here to create the document, uh, make sure I'm filed properly in different states. We did a syndication and I didn't even realize this. We have to file in every state where there's an investor and yeah. all of a sudden, how many, how many states you cover with your investors matters. What is like a, I don't know, let's, I know every case is different. But let's just say, assume we're doing, a, we're buying an $8 million building, you know, raising a couple million dollars in in money, you know, 20 to 30 investors. What's kind of like a budget range someone should think about for the legal side of that? Uh, project.
1: Yeah, we're, we charge anywhere from 12500 to $15,000 for something like that.
0: Okay. Um, I think it's a good just kind of back of the envelope of what someone should. And then as the money gets higher, do legal rates increase? They do. Or is it, okay, yeah. just because it's, it's more risk and you got to be more careful. Is that it's, fair? Not, it's not
1: just more risk, you got to be more careful. First of all, there's two things at play here. The more money you're going out to raise, the more likely... Uh, your, con- your documents are going to be a little more complicated. There's going to be more things involved, number one. And number two, our insurance is directly related to how much money you go out to raise. So if you're going to go out and raise $25 million, well, guess what? I'm going to I'm gonna have to pay for that insurance. Um, so we account for that.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, no different than how title insurance is higher. Or yeah, other exactly. no, that's
1: exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right.
0: Cool. Um, So are you starting to see syndicators use different tech platforms to help them raise money for their deal? And if you are, maybe just talk me through where you kind of see that world going as the tech marketplaces for syndications
1: Increase. i I think it's a big mistake to not be on some kind of platform so that investors can easily go on and fill out a subscription agreement and invest in your deal. Um, you know we what I would uh, what would be great is if you could create uh, you know almost a uh, uh, an investor key that can take you across multiple platforms and automatically fill in your information. Um, so, but as families get complicated, you know, and they add trusts or self-directed IRAs and things like that, those are things that also have to be taken into consideration. Um, and then there's also internet security issues. You know, what I I tell, I always tell, um, my children, uh, I want you to be interested in two things for college. If you, if you decide to go one machine learning and two internet security, because, you know, that we could wipe out entire entire bank accounts if you don't have the proper internet security. And, and we, we definitely don't want to see that. So, so but I think it's a massive mistake. It's a massive mistake for a syndicator not to be online, to still use paper and pen for their subscription agreements.
0: Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Uh, are, are we starting to see, and, and this is just, I'm just a bit naive here. Are we starting to see marketplaces develop where a syndicator, can put their offering up on kind of like the Amazon equivalent, I guess, as a way to uh, get more eyeballs in front of their offering? Um,
1: I kind of, in a lot of ways, I kind of hope not. I don't want something that's totally unregulated. And we're also seeing the platforms that do exist getting pickier and pickier and pickier. So for example, I used to send a ton of clients over to Street. And then their underwriting became tougher and tougher and tougher. And then- um, And just really
0: quick, Jillian, so just CrowdStreet, could you just kind of, yeah. um, I don't know, for folks maybe haven't heard of it, or what, what sure. is CrowdStreet and how does that kind of work in this whole- Yeah,
1: world? so CrowdStreet is a platform, a real estate, commercial real estate platform that um, allows issuers to list on their website and use their technology and use their name and use their database essentially. Um, but the, the thing is, is whereas CrowdStreet used to take you know any commercial deal- I mean, they wouldn't take any commercial deal, but they sure. they were they were not as picky as they are now. And now their underwriting has gotten pretty intense, where they they make they only allow issuers who've already done so much in deals and have so much in deal flow and and the underwriting on the individual project works. Um, so you know, we're seeing that. And then, you know, Realty Mogul for years has been super picky. Realty Mogul is another platform that allows um syndicators to list on their platform. But again, they're super picky as well. They only allow um certain syndicators to list on their platform. And um and and then uh there was one uh site that I can't remember now off the top of my head that went under because they took so many bad deals. Um, And then the other, the other websites are taking like smaller deals. So, so for the middle of the road syndicator, like in the example, you gave the $8 million property, it's hard to get listed. So what you really need to find is your own technology and list on your own site. I am not necessarily looking forward to the eBay or Amazon of, of offerings. Um, And that is because we are at the top of the market right now. And although I see a lot of people following the rules and being good little, you know, securities rules followers, I'm also seeing people not follow the rules. And when you create an environment like that, where like Amazon, you know, I have six different credit cards saved in my Amazon account. I can just buy whatever it's buy one click the end right and and i could be buying a crappy product as for all i know but there's a star rating system so hopefully that's a reliable system we don't have a system like that for securities right now um and the and so and i also fear a, a star rating system for securities offerings uh there is one site that does rate sponsors and things like that that i've seen out there but um so so stuff like that makes me very very nervous Um, or the idea of that makes me very, very nervous because it's just, it's rife with opportunity for fraud. Um, and, and the big thing is, is like, I, I just talked to an investor yesterday who's worried that one of the deals he's in is bad and, and him and his friends are in this deal and they're very nervous that they're about to lose all their money. They're having a panic attack over it. Um, which is another thing for investors you know when we're when we're we're drunk with excitement, right? Over investing on the next big thing, and we we make these anxious decisions to click here quickly to invest ten thousand dollars or what have you. The problem is this: investors should not be investing more money than they can lose or can afford to lose. And yes. when you start putting one clicks in, you kind of take that barrier to entry away. Um, I'm not totally against it. I just want everybody to be aware of the risks associated with that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, uh, what is something that you're seeing kind of, it, are, are you starting to see this world change? I mean, we're, we're at the, the market's hot. It, it, I'm seeing more people syndicating than ever before. Is it, are you seeing this as well?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I know, like, so like yeah. there's two parts of this, right? I mean, I know you wrote, so you wrote the book, The Crowdfunding Myth, um, all about kind of um, basically opening up offerings to more people. Right. Which, by the way, I am all for. I think that's great. Um, what I think is kind of, I, I guess it's good to a point, but makes me a little nervous is, I mean, I'm seeing people who, you know, their day job is they're a a manager at a grocery store and, you know, they've been listening to the bigger pockets podcast and now they're going out and syndicating, you know, a, a $12 million deal and sending it to me with all this. And I'm like, Whoa, you're like, joking. Oh God.
1: I hope you're lying. So, no, <laughs> I'm not lying. And, oh my god, uh, Yeah. And, that makes me nervous. Um, you know, and everybody should get their shot and their chance. Um, but there, I mean, the problem is this. There's a lot of people in the industry right now who have not lived through a downturn. I've lived through a downturn. It was awful. It was terrible. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. There's another downturn coming. We're all going to have to live through it again together. And, and, but the, 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 the survivors will be the ones who, who remember the last one in a lot of ways. The survivors are the ones who are sitting on the sidelines with their cash right now. And I am still seeing good deals. Um, in certain sectors, and then I'm seeing some not so good deals, and um, and that's kind of where the problem lies, right? So,
0: what are some sectors yeah. that? I mean, you, you probably see a lot of deals, which is kind of weird. Uh, I I don't really think of necessarily a lawyer being the one to like yeah. give uh, suggestions, but you probably see so much stuff. What are some sectors that kind of interest you?
1: Well, right now, if I was if I was going to be a betting person um my if we're talking asset classes i would bet on self-storage those are always great during downturns and i would bet on mobile home parks which are also good on downturns but with the mobile home parks you need to underwrite those even more carefully than you would underwrite an apartment building because there's a lot of boogeymen in the closets of mobile home parks so mobile home parks really have to be vetted carefully you got to make sure there's like i hate to put it this way and this is the true for apartment buildings too you got to make sure there's no um rapists there haven't <laughs> been any murders wow. there have the you know the all of the air conditioning units are still intact there's 24-hour security that roams around like there's a there's a lot to worry about with mobile home parks in particular but they're also a really great asset class right now as a self-sort, in my opinion, in my opinion. I have, no, I have no data to back that up, so.
0: Yeah, no, it's you know, interesting though. I mean, you see data. a lot of deals and I'm sure you're starting to see some, like I am, some multifamily type deals where it, it, it just doesn't look right. I mean, the, you know, some of these pro formas are written in a way where I just don't see any possible way You're going to achieve a 3% vacancy rate on a C-class multifamily home that, you know, needs a lot of work. I mean, it's just not right. It's not going to happen, Uh, you know, really low maintenance costs. I'm sure you're seeing similar things and and probably starting to get a little worried.
1: Well, okay. Let's talk about another thing that's not even, that's absolutely true on its face, right? But let's look at the 800-pound gorilla that's over here. And that's baby boomers. Baby, I just read this in the Wall Street Journal. Baby boomers are going to start dying.
0: <laughs>
1: um, so morbid dying. here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: they're,
1: and they're going to start moving into uh, senior living facilities, another great asset class. They're going to start moving into assisted living facilities. Um, they're going to be moving out of their homes their homes that they've lived in for, you know, however many years. And this is going to present an amazing opportunity for first time home buyers in a lot of ways. Um, in some ways, in some ways, it's going to uh, present a great opportunity for gener- Gen Xers to move up if, if that's where they want to move. Um, or it's going to create a new environment of single-family homes that are available on the marketplace. And when single-family homes become available and are inexpensive, then what ends up happening is those C-class apartments, not the A-class apartments. Because the A-class apartments are nice, and they're already expensive, and people want to live there because they have all these amenities. It's the C and B-class apartment dwellers that are going to be like, oh, I'm going to I can live in a house that's a little run down.
0: With the yard. Yeah. With the
1: yard. Yeah, I'm going to move yeah.
0: there. Yeah, I mean, the whole supply and demand curve gets really interesting there. Uh, yeah, and
1: it's not, it's not going to be the A-class apartment dwellers. I, I don't think. Like, again, I have no data to back this up. I do have the data to back up the, the baby boomers. There's going to be – I can't even remember what the number was, but it was like 71 million or something like that. Uh, yeah.
0: Fascinating, um, Jillian. One question we ask every guest here is: you know, as you look to the next two to five years, you're obviously right on the cusp of understanding, you know, how people are raising money, how they're investing across yeah. different deals, yeah, opening up. Frankly, I think, uh, you know, opening up investing to more people, which I think is an amazing thing, as long as it's yeah. done right. Um, why don't you? I, I, a two part question. So one part is what's something that kind of you're excited about over the next two to five years and then part two is, and and hopefully something different, maybe the same thing, but what's something that makes you kind of a little nervous? Uh, over the next Well, year,
1: um, for me, uh, I'm excited about Bitcoin. No, I'm just joking. I'm not there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you totally had me. I was like, oh, no. Here we, here we go. Here we go.
1: Yeah. <laughs> wow. like interview over. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we got to
0: go. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, no, I'm excited. What am I excited about? I'm excited about the opportunity for um, more Airbnbs. Quite frankly, I think Airbnb is... Um, a marketplace that really hasn't even hit its stride quite yet. Um, I'm excited for um, for basically note buying. I think note buying is going to be huge here in the next two to five years. Um, what I'm not so excited for is the calls I'm going to get from my clients who lost their investors money and perhaps they did something wrong and they didn't tell me. I'm not excited about that. I do think about that. I know I'm supposed to live in the present moment and not be thinking about the future, but I just, you know, when I unleash a, a, a client out on the world, and uh, I, I and I admonish them, and I tell them, and I tell them, and I tell them, do this and do this right and don't do it wrong. Um, there's always that one guy, and yeah. uh, or gal that yeah. um, goes out there and 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 perhaps screws it up a little bit. And that's troublesome for everyone involved.
0: Do you worry a little bit? Something I worry about is that uh, in a hot market, mistakes are covered up. Like you know that deal you yeah. bought, you, you know, yeah. like I, like I, I've seen a little bit of this where you know we get in and we're managing a private. It's like whoa, like this thing is a disaster, and and then we see that. You know maybe the the old person who was running it did a really bad job, but they were still able to sell it for more than they bought it for because the market's just so hot right now, and in a downturn mistakes aren't covered up, and then that's when you know problems ensue
1: I yeah, mean. no that's exactly right, so you know that's that's the thing and and one of the things I try to explain to um One of the things I try to explain to people who tell me, well, so-and-so is doing it this way and they're fine is, yeah, they just haven't, like, if no one's losing money, then everything's fine for the most part. It's when people start losing money that the problems come and, and then all those things become, I'm just seeing, I'm seeing the start of it now and it's going to be bad. It's going to be
0: bad. (laughs) Um, I, I agree. It makes me nervous and, and I, I just hope our listeners and other folks out there are not caught up in the hype and, and tread carefully. Yeah. Uh, there's, don't there's- get
1: caught up in the hype just because you see like that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Don't get caught up in the hype. Wait. If you know something feels bad, but everybody else is doing it. And it's like that old axiom. If, if, if your friends were jumping off a bridge, would you do it too? Like, right. you know. Don't just, just because that's happening. Hey, I got to run. My kid's school's calling. Sorry.
0: (laughs) It's okay, Jillian. Uh, Hey, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for Uh, having me.
0: Jillian, this was awesome. Uh, And if real quick, if people want to reach you, what's a good way to reach you?
1: Um, They can go to crowdfundinglawyers.net and um, find me there. And then I have my calendar on, um, on that site, and and they can get me right there.
0: Awesome, thanks, Jillian, so much. Hope your kids okay. I thanks Lauren sure.
1: just grabbed my phone and answered it. I'm sorry that I did that.
0: <laughs> it's no they worries. It very
1: unprofessional, but they called twice, and I was like, "Oh man, I better go."
0: I, it is all good. Uh, this is real life in the real estate world. Sometimes <laughs> your kids are more important than crowdfunding. Um, <laughs>
1: Thank you. Yes. So,
0: awesome. uh, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Jack. And
0: awesome, awesome stuff. And we'll see you soon. All right, bye. Cool, bye. Thanks for joining us today. I have one more request. If you like this show, could you just please give us a review on Apple Podcasts? I'd really, really appreciate it so more investors can hear about us. Follow us at Real Estate Hackers on Instagram if you're cool like my wife. And if you have a great real estate hack, hit me up. Maybe we'll get you on this show. Real Estate Hackers is an on-air brands production. Eric and team are unbelievable. Thanks for all you do for the show. See you soon.